Hello, I'm Brian Kloss, columnist for The Washington Post and assistant professor in global politics at University College London. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Kim Gattas, former BBC journalist and author of The Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-year rivalry that unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory in the Middle East. And it's a great book. You should read it. So, Kim, welcome. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Thanks for having me. We've got decades of Middle East history to unpack, a very volatile region at the moment. I think, you know, one place to start is in 1979 because you focus on how the threads of 1979 are still woven into the fabric of of contemporary Middle East politics. What's happening in the region and what are sort of the, the three or four most important events that echo into the current day? So 1979 is is a turning point for the region. And it's a turning point because it's not just in a, a year that is full of big geopolitical events, but it is one that I use as the starting point for the story that I tell in Black Wave because it has an impact beyond the politics and the geopolitics. It has an impact on the culture, society, and uh, the way people understand their religion in the region. And of course, 1979 is the year of the Iran revolution when uh, the monarchy turns into, the Persian kingdom turns into an Islamic theocracy. It's the year when in Saudi Arabia, there is a siege uh, on the holy mosque in Mecca by Saudi zealots. And it's the year of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Three events that are seemingly unrelated that become completely intertwined. And the ripples of those events wash over the region from Egypt all the way to Pakistan and beyond. But I focus on the, 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 the region between Egypt and Pakistan. And it echoes to this day because that rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia is still tearing apart the region. And it has ebbed and flowed, but it has never gone away. It is still the driver of a lot of what we're seeing happen in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen. It is a very destructive rivalry. And I'm mentioning geopolitical events, wars and, you know, the work of militants in those countries, because that's what makes the headlines. That's what people read about and see on the news. What I focus on in Black Wave is how people have changed, how culture has changed. And that echoes to this day as well, because sectarian identities that did not exist in this way before Sunni versus Shia have solidified over time. And it is why you've seen sectarian violence in Iraq in, in, a, in a form that we'd never seen before. And the rivalry continues also to echo in Iraq because you see people, young people today protesting in Baghdad against the stranglehold of Iran on their country's politics. Mm. So we're still living with the impact, the, the, the consequences of 1979. The rivalry has changed and mutated over time, but it is there with us still to this day. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the the questions that you pose in the book, this, uh, I think, very depressing but also important question to pose is what happened to us? What do you mean by that? What What is what happened to us uh, getting at in the book? So nostalgia is something that we all deal with around the world, this sort of yearning for a different time where things were easier, nicer, simpler. 
You know, you have it in the United States where some people yearn for the 60s or the 50s because they think it was a just a more prosperous or simpler times. And in the Middle East, we and, and just to sort of make clear that, you know, nostalgia uh, uh, tends to erase all the problems of the past, right? So you forget about the problems and you just look at the positive side. In the Middle East, there is that kind of nostalgia. But I do think that it is also an effort to look back at what happened that changed a region that was vibrant, tolerant, culturally um, exciting, uh, diverse, and led it to let it down a road that was that is a lot more intolerant, where uh, the politics are ossified, where religion has taken hold in the politics and society in a way that wasn't the case before. And so we ask ourselves, well, what happened to the great uh, the greats of Egyptian cinema. What happened to, you know, all the publishing that was taking place in the region? What happened to the days where you could walk around Egypt, or the streets of Cairo or the streets of Baghdad, wearing a veil or not wearing a veil and not worrying about whether you were going to be harassed on the street? So mm-hmm. there is something that happened. And the question is like a mantra in the region. People ask it everywhere, not just in Lebanon, not just in Iraq, uh, but also in Pakistan and also in Egypt. Try to understand what changed, what changed us. And it's the effort, it's my attempt to answer that question that led me down the path to understanding what 79 did to us in a way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think when you when you talk to people who have limited knowledge of the <clears throat> Middle East, uh, and you show them pictures of Iran in the 1970s, women in Iran in the 1970s before the revolution, or you talk about Beirut, you know, before the civil war, or you know, the nightlife that it was known for. We still have great nightlife, but, yes. but I take your point. But, yes, but, 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 but I mean these 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 caricatures that I think are in popular culture about the Middle East, mm-hmm. Middle East, especially in you know sort of the shallow depictions in mm-hmm. shows like Homeland, etc. How does that differ from history? I mean, do you need to do you need to draw this out when you're talking to Western audience to say this isn't inevitable, this isn't how it always was, and this absolutely. isn't a caricature that's accurate? Yes, absolutely. Because I think that what I do with Black Wave is shatter some misconceptions and rewrite the narrative about the Middle East. There are three main misconceptions. One is that people f- believe that Iran and Saudi Arabia have always been rivals, and so it'll always be like that. They were not. Before 1979, they were allies. They were maybe competitive, like France and Germany, but they were allies. They were twin pillars in in, in U.S. policy to contain the Soviet Union. The second misconception is that Sunnis and Shias have always killed each other, the two main sects of Islam. There is a theological divide. There is a, a historical schism there. But Sunnis and Shias have not always killed each other. It really only started in the aftermath of 1979. And actually, it took some time before those sectarian, that sectarian hatred took hold and before sectarian violence really became an element of, of daily life in the region. It wasn't immediate. And the second is what, I, what we've just been talking the, la- the third one is the, the one we've just been talking about, is that the cultural diversity, the vibrancy, the tolerance that defined life before, cosmopolitan life in the Levant, in Lebanon, in Palestine, in Egypt, all of that, um, 
all of that changed after 1979. And that's not a long time ago. You know, that's 40 years. That's, that's, that's my generation. That's how old I am. And that's why I think that it's important to bring this story to a wider audience, to remind them and to remind ourselves even almost in the region that it wasn't always like that. And when you accept that it wasn't always like that and you are reminded very vividly on the page of what it used to be like, then you can also think forward about how it could be again. And I'll just say one more thing about, you know, caricatures of of, uh, of the region and the simplification of, of a whole region. It's, it's very easy to say, oh, the Middle East has always been like that. The reason why it's important to accept that it wasn't is, is twofold. A, because it, it wasn't. And because this attitude only amplifies the otherization the sort of the the other they're over there they're they're not like us it's like that but the other thing is that when you live in the west today and you see a lot of the changes around you in the politics the rise of populism the rise of right-wing parties you know the trump approach to to ruling brexit in in the uk there is something there that needs to be taken into consideration about the changes in values and norms, the erosion of freedoms here and there. There is perhaps a cautionary tale in, in Black Wave that, you know, things creep up on you. And mm. before you know it, you're asking what happened to us. I'm, I'm not saying that you're going to have sectarian warfare, sure, sure. but changes like that happen very very slowly, very surreptitiously until it's too late. Yeah, I, w- I wanted to ask a little bit about this. I, I think I think the history mattering is very important for the book, right? That, that you put history central to the narrative of contemporary events. That's great. I, I think that's a very, very important thing you do. But I also just want to push back slightly on that and say, how do we avoid the narrative that we're victims of history, that we can't change this because 1979 has happened and now the divides have been sown. So so how do you grapple as an author treating this subject between bringing history to the center stage and not saying because of past events, the, the future is already written? No, quite, quite the contrary. I think the future can be written very differently. I think that what you see happen on the streets of Baghdad and the streets of Beirut and the streets of Tehran and other cities in, in, in Iran, Lebanon and Iraq is proof that the future can be rewritten. What I meant to say was when you look at the past, you understand why you are where you are today. And when you're reminded of a better past, it gives you perhaps a template or a roadmap for how you can move away from today's problems, today's abyss, really, Hmm. and forge a better path forward. I don't think we're victims of, of history. And I think the young generation in the region is very aware that they want something different. They don't want to be hostages to 1979. They don't want to be hostages to sectarian politics. They don't want to be hostages to religion. And that's why it's important to pay attention to the protests that have been taking place in these countries. They get very little attention in the West, in the US, in the UK, in Europe, because there's so much happening. But something is coming undone in in the region. And the young people of these countries and beyond, I mean, Algeria, Sudan, uh, all these countries have seen protests. They want a different They want a different future, and I think they can write it. I want to talk about current events in a moment, but I I just – one of the things that you said a moment ago about your – the misconceptions of the Middle East really stuck out to me because I think – I can only imagine that you end up at, you know, a a dinner party or a social Mm. occasion and somebody comes up to you and says, well, they've been fighting for a thousand years. Or the slightly more clever person – 
comes up to you and reduces it to, well, everything is as a result of Sykes-Picot and they drew some lines in the sand and that's it. Which one annoys you more and how do you deal with that as somebody who has deep knowledge of the region? I really don't get annoyed by these misconceptions. That's why I wrote a book because I think it's just, right? (laughs) Because, you know, I, I am willing to explain it, you know, a hundred, a thousand times. I understand why people have misconceptions. And that's why I'm sitting here with you to try to undo them. That's why I wrote the book. That's why I'm doing as many interviews as I can. I will always answer these questions to people who want to engage and and listen. There are some people whose minds you can't change, and that's fine too. But I've been getting so many emails and private messages on Twitter and social media from so many different places, from Arizona, from Kentucky, from Northern Ireland, from Tehran, from, you know, India, from um, Pakistan, of people who say, aha, now I get it. I've had all these headlines coming at me about the Middle East. I never quite understood what, what it was about. It looked like a cesspool of hatred. But now I read your book. And not only do I understand how it all fits together, but I've met some incredible people in these pages that show me that there is a whole different silent majority out there that has been fighting. Actually, they're not silent. They have been silenced, but who has been fighting against the forces of darkness that have tried to turn this region into something that it really doesn't want to be. But just to go back to the Sykes-Picot one and the, um, you know, the two, the two they've examples, been, they've been fighting, the, 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 for they've been fighting years, forever. Yeah. The, the, the thing that I also try to do is to, you know, there are many turning points in any regions, in any countries history. What is different about what I explore is that previous turning points, you know, meant the end of a political ideology or, you know, a war, a defeat in the war, etc. What this one did, what 1979 did, was also change who we are and hijacked our collective memory. And that is why what I've written, I believe, is different from what we've seen before on, on the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, on that point, so in in 1979, Americans, for example, think about it through the prism of the hostage crisis Mm -hmm. rather than the sort of ramifications in the the broader region. And a lot of Middle East histories that engage with these sort of broader narratives about the region – end up injecting Western foreign policy as the central driving force and, as you say, silence the agency of individuals in the the region itself. And I think you do an excellent job of not doing that, right, not falling into that trap. But but I don't absolve the U.S. of the mistakes that it has made or the West in general. Absolutely. But what what I wanted to ask is was it a deliberate decision to not make this – U.S. focused and say the U.S. is doing everything? Or was it something where you thought that, you know, you need to have the pushback against the way the U.S. has affected the region, but you want to sort of amplify the voices of those in the Middle East who have been major players in shaping events? It's a little bit of both. And I'll tell you something. I made a very conscious decision not to sit in Washington to write this book, because that's where I used to live for 10 years as a BBC correspondent. But I decided that to write this book from a Middle Eastern perspective, from my perspective as an Arab woman, I had to sit in Beirut to really be immersed in the culture, in the mood, to be a phone call away from people in Lebanon to talk about Hezbollah, about Saudi Arabia, to be able to hop on a plane and go to Egypt or to Pakistan much more easily than if I were sitting in Washington. Because inevitably... When you're sitting in a Western capital, you start looking at things through that prism. And I didn't want to do that. The reason why I focused on Saudi Arabia and Iran and their role is because you're right. They do have agency. They're not victims. Iran, of course, is under sanctions. It has had a 
rough 40 years, the people of Iran are having, you know, a difficult time under this leadership. Um, you know, whether it's, I mean, we can, that's a whole different, that's a whole different episode, possibly. But, but the leadership of Iran uh, has agency, and the Saudis, as leadership, have agency, and they should take responsibility for the things that they've done, whether it's the rise of militant groups like Hezbollah, whether it's the war in Yemen that has been devastating, humanitarian disaster, whether it's the war in Syria, where Iran played such a role. And just to circle back to Yemen, obviously, that is on Saudi Arabia. So I wanted to highlight how these two countries were responsible for where we are, for why we are where we are today. Of course, the U.S. plays a crucial role. The U.S. supports dictators. In supporting dictators, it keeps, it helps keep the lid on some of these problems or aggravates them, whether it's in Pakistan in the 80s when it supported Zia al-Haq, who Islamized the country and turned it into what we know as Pakistan today, banning, you know, music, forcing women to veil, etc., and Islamizing the laws, whether it's supporting Hosni Mubarak in Egypt because it brings stability because of the peace treaty with Israel and all that that led to in terms of problems. However, what I want to say is that the US is responsible for a lot. Saudi Arabia and Iran are also responsible for where they've taken the region. But the changes that have happened in culture and society and, 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 the, and the influence of religion, that is really on Saudi Arabia and Iran. That is their doing. Uh, yes, the US invaded Iraq, but nobody told the Iranians that they should start a network of murderous militias. Yes, you know, the U.S. has troops in Saudi Arabia, but nobody told the Saudis or the U.S. didn't tell the Saudis that they should, you know, fund mosques that preach intolerant Islam everywhere. So they need to take responsibility for that. And now it's time for a short break. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. So I wanted to uh, fast forward a bit from 1979, and you, you had talked a moment ago about Hosni Mubarak, and so that inevitably leads to the Arab Spring. Mubarak died uh, recently. The Arab Spring has been written off by a lot of people. 
And can I can I call it the Arab uprising? The Arab uprising. Spring, because sure. spring always brings you know fall, you know autumn, winter. Sure. Okay. Let's call it uprising. All right. So we'll call it the Arab uprising. The Arab uprising is often written off by a lot of people, and I think you know I, I've spent some time in, in Tunis shortly after uh, in in 2012, 2013. There was a sort of vibrancy to the place. I mean, it was every there was a lot of hope that I think has dissipated a bit. But there's also this point of view that I have, which is that we have very short time horizons when we think about the sort of seeds of democracy, you know, to use the spring metaphor that you've rejected. Um, And and I think it's to say, you know, we we didn't think that Japan had to be democratized in a few years or South Korea had to be democratized. Yeah, it took forever. So so are you... And a lot of American money and support. Indeed. So are you you optimistic that this is a Mm long-tailed movement that will actually lead to democracy in the region? I am. I am and can I say I am but I'm not <laughs> let let me let me say I am but let me caveat it as well look the arab uprisings are still in motion the continuation of what happened in egypt and in syria is still unfolding in algeria in lebanon in iraq this is a long long term story that we're trying to tell Going back to your question about the U.S. responsibility, you know, their desire to bring stability back to Egypt is what got us Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who has turned into an even worse dictator than Hosni Mubarak. This obsession with stability that America has, has brought us dictators one after the other that really do nothing to solve any problems and only keep the lid on the problems. And they sell this idea to the West that they are the guarantors of peace and stability and that their people are not ready for anything but dictatorship. Well, yes, of course. I mean, if you keep them under dictatorship, you can never move forward with the political maturation of a society. But beyond that, I would say that also it's important to note that Iran and Saudi Arabia played a role in the thwarting of a lot of these uprisings. The Saudis had traumatic flashbacks to 1979 when they saw what was happening to Hosni Mubarak because here was yet again an American ally like the Shah with streets of his country thronged by millions Mm. like 1978 and 1979 in Iran who was suddenly apparently overnight abandoned by the Americans just like the Shah, who then had to leave. So they thought, well, we miscalculated in 1979 because they didn't realize that the Shah would be replaced by an enemy. We're not going to let this happen again. And so with the Emiratis, they did everything they could to undermine the process, undermine Mohammed Morsi, the president who was democratically elected with all his faults, and they made sure that you know he would be removed. Mohammed Morsi didn't help his case. He had a lot of issues. But anyway, the, the point was that we were then faced again with a with a dictator. What I will say about the the sort of the long the long tail of this is that yes, I mean as you very well point out, you know, after World War II, it took a long time for Japan to stabilize, for South Korea to become the South Korea that 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 we have today, and it required a lot of American support and billions of American dollars. I mean, think of the Marshall Plan, mm-hmm. and none of that was available for the Arab countries in the wake of the Arab uprising. So we're fighting against all odds to forge a different future. Yeah, I love there was a, a map I saw, a political risk map by one of these, you know, many firms that sort of puts countries green or yellow or orange or red from 2010. And all the countries that were green in 2010 were where all the wars were happening in 2011, 2012, right? I mean, so it's, I think your idea uh, is very apt to say that dictators sell stability. Whether they actually deliver it over the long term, I think, is a different question. They break apart quite catastrophically, don't well, they? Well, but also they feed the worst trends because they need a boogeyman to 
you know, sh- to, to sort of, you know, wave at the West saying it's me or them. And that's what happened in Egypt for the longest time. And that's what happened in, in Syria as well. For the longest time, Assad, a seemingly Bashar al-Assad and before him Hafs al-Assad, seemingly secular dictator, you know, wearing a suit, clean shaven, speaks some English, is supposed to be the better choice because he says, well, it's either me or, or you have the Sunni fundamentalists. Well, who is feeding the Sunni fundamentalists? Who is jailing them and then releasing them at will to go fight the Americans in Iraq because he's trying to undermine the U.S. efforts to stabilize Iraq after 2003. It was Bashar al-Assad. And then who released all the Islamists as soon as the uprising started in Syria? Bashar al-Assad, because he let them loose in the wild and he thought, you know, come what may, it doesn't matter. If they wreck the country, they wreck the country. So, you know, one of the things that your book is full of that I, I really appreciate is is the there, there's a lot of witty and wonderful anecdotes that go beyond basic headlines. And as we said before, I mean, you do really give voice to people who have been silenced by Western narratives. What's one of your favorite stories from the book where it's it's a person that you think deserves a little bit more attention, has been forgotten by history? You know, none of these characters have a place almost in history in the sense that they're not historical figures. I make sure not to focus on known characters. They might be known in their country or they might be known in some circles like Arab literature. So I like that perhaps I've given them a chance to be part of history. Do you have a um, favorite? Or? Um, can I say all of them? Because they're, they're, really, they're really amazing. But if I have to name a few, I would say one of my favorites is Ahmed Naji. He's an Egyptian novelist. He must be in his mid-30s by now, very spunky, irreverent, very learned, very good at literature, very understands Islam very, very well. And he wrote this, you know, crazy novel called Using Life hmm. that landed him in jail because it had some pretty obscene uh, sexual scenes in there and a lot of swear words, which I won't repeat on air, on the air. But what I loved about him is his his story and how he had, you know, been raised by a father who was actually quite conservative and religious, but Ahmed rejected religion. He was on the streets of Cairo protesting for the removal of Hosni Mubarak. And he was a fan, a huge fan of another character of my books. I so happened to find out as I was interviewing him, who was Nasser Abu Zaid, who was a professor of, of, of Arabic literature and, 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 and Islam, who was apostatized in the 90s and had to go into exile uh, with his with his wife. So it's it was incredible to see how these lives intertwined. But perhaps the most poignant, most difficult story to write was that of Yassin al-Hajj Saleh, a Syrian dissident who spent 16 years in, in jail in the 80s and early 90s under, Bash- under Hafez al-Assad, uh, is part of the uprising uh, against Bashar al-Assad in 2011, comes from Raqqa, the city that becomes ISIS's capital, and tells me this incredible story about how Raqqa was actually an, almost an Iranian outpost before ISIS took over because there are these two tombs of Muslim saints that are mostly revered by Shias but also by Sunnis where the Iranians had built these huge mausoleums and were proselytizing and bringing Shia clerics and everything to, to town. And then as soon as ISIS takes the town over, they blow up the two mausoleums. And so there are incredible stories like that that are very powerful throughout the book. It's a 1001 Nights of Modern Middle Eastern Politics. 
So you mentioned a, a dissident from Syria. Let's let's move to a dissident from Saudi Arabia, the mm. late Jamal Khashoggi, who who uh, I write an opinion page or opinion column for the Washington Post. So yeah. one of my so uh, former former colleagues who you know was was murdered by the Saudi regime and then subsequently an attempted cover up of it facilitated by um, the American president. So. How does this relate to the themes? I think one thing that's really striking in the in the book is that you don't just talk about the events from, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019 around this story. You you trace how Khashoggi is is part of a bigger story of Saudi change, MBS over time, things like that. So how does he fit into the the narrative and how does he sort of tell us about what's happening in Saudi Arabia today? His story is 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 also an incredible one. Jamal was a friend and a colleague. I'd known him for a while over email and messages. I'd met him only for the first time in person in 2017 when he first arrived in the US in sort of self-imposed exile. Initially, Jamal was not supposed to be a character in the book, but his story was so powerful that as I was writing over the beginning of 2018, he just inserted himself into the narrative because his story does give us the arc of how things have changed. Jamal was studying in the United States in 1979. And when he returns to Saudi Arabia, in 1981 or so, he's already noticed that what is a conservative country, what has always been a conservative country, has become even more conservative because the driver of the rivalry is also religion and the desire within both Iran and Saudi Arabia to be the religious, the leader of the Muslim world. So they compete on this turf and they're both in this, you know, war to outbid each other as to who's the, who's holier. And so within their borders and Without and outside of their borders, the Saudis are proselytizing heavily and imposing this more conservative and more conservative reading of Islam. And Jamal notices that. He comes back and he notices that suddenly family gatherings are segregated, which didn't used to be the case. He notices that more people are going to the mosque, which was something that was a little bit uncool before. So he's in those first chapters as we see the very beginnings of this shifts in people's you know, way of life. And then he it becomes a journalist. And in one of my chapters in Pakistan, he's there covering the jihad in, in Afghanistan. Uh, Pakistan was the forward base, if you will, for all, all the mujahideens. And Jamal was there. And he tells me the story of how, you know, he sees one of these Arab uh, fighters who's joined the mujahideen in a hotel in Peshawar, order the, 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 the hotel uh, waiter to, you know, close the curtain between him and these Westerners sitting at the bar drinking. And Jamal thinks, God, this is so arrogant. You come here and you impose your way of seeing things. And then later on, you you meet him in the chapter around 9-11 when he gets fired for publishing op-eds that are very critical of Saudi Arabia's approach to culture and religion, which he believes have led to, you know, is one of the reasons that has led to the events of 9-11. And you meet him at the end, unfortunately, mm-hmm. when he is murdered. Uh, and I describe this as a macabre twist in the rivalry because I think that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, wants to be a bit more like Iran, wants to be a bit more like uh, Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force who was assassinated mm. in a U.S. strike at the beginning of the year, who ha- who runs a network of allies with a firm grip, allies who are loyal, who deliver, and who also instill fear around them. And Mohammed bin Salman wants a little bit of that for Saudi Arabia. And one of his ways of, of doing it is to instill fear 
in his in his subjects, and Jamal paid the ultimate price. Did did it surprise you how little pushback there was? On, I mean, the, the thing the thing I I have to say I was stunned because. I know the long history of America, American support for Saudi Arabia. I know the sort of bargain that Washington politicos think they've struck there. But to just simply murder someone who works for the Washington Post, who's a resident of the U.S., who has kids you know, in the U.S., with no consequence. I mean, we're, we're now it, – it, it's history now almost. It's not even being talked about. Did that surprise you or did that sort of seem like, you know what, this is just how it is? It's a very good question, and I think it's one that we ask ourselves about a lot of things that are happening in the world. Is it okay that there are one million refugees in Idlib today pushed into a corner because of the world's total, you know, indifference after nine years of war? Is that making any headlines anymore? Does anyone care other than when the refugees show up on Europe's border? You know, is it what's what's worth a thousand a hundred thousand, a million, half a million murders or one, one man. I mean, the way in which Jamal Khashoggi was assassinated inside a Saudi consulate was horrendously brazen. And in a way, yes, it is incredible that it has become history. It probably would not have been if it had been a democratic president or any other president than President Trump. There is something there in the relationship, in his way of looking at it, uh, of looking at the world. That means that it, you know, there were no consequences for the Saudis. Well, he, he said, uh, "Well, they buy a lot of weapons." That was his uh, sort of immediate reaction, right? Yeah. I mean, you also had Lindsey Graham, who said that Mohammed bin Salman was a wrecking ball. But Republicans are not willing to go against President Trump at, at the moment on 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 anything really, and that sort of goes back to my point that in some way or another, we're all quite a little bit alike around the world because, you know, I see this as tribalism in the United States uh, with the Republicans unwilling to criticize President Trump on, on really anything, almost anything. You know, justice will, will be done at some point. I think it is incumbent upon us to continue to tell these stories, to tell Jamal's story, to remind people of the brave Saudi women who are in jail, tortured for having campaigned for the right to drive, something that Mohammed bin Salman did give to Saudi Arabia's women the right to drive, but he wanted to be the magnanimous leader who made that possible. He didn't want it to be seen as the result of a campaign. Mm. So, yes, I am surprised that it is history, but I'm also not surprised that Jamal has been forgotten in that sense. I want to forecast in a bit to sort of look into our crystal ball of where the Middle East might be headed with this rivalry. But before we get there, we've talked about Saudi Arabia. Let's talk about Iran in the, in the modern age. They're facing a very severe coronavirus outbreak. Mm-hmm. I think a, a measurable percentage of their parliament has been infected. You know, there's there's a lot of questions about their ability to manage the crisis. And you also have the, the Soleimani uh, assassination as you were uh, killing. And the shooting down of the Ukrainian the, plane. Exactly. So there's a series of crises that are testing the leadership right now. Which one is the which you one is add the most, to the crisis? You yeah. should add the uprisings, the the protests Indeed. in Iraq and Lebanon. Yeah. So we have mass mass protests. We have a shooting down of a civilian airliner. You know, earlier in the year we thought maybe there's about to be a war with the United States, and now you have, uh, you know, sort of the center or one of the flashpoints of a global pandemic in Iran. Which one of these is most dangerous for the regime's survival? I think that the combination of of them all is is pushing the regime to to a breaking point. But I also know that they're very good at survival. So I'm not going to sit here and forecast that they're, you know, about to collapse or that this is, you know, the beginning of the end of the regime in Iran. I do think that they're stretched very thin. I think that what is happening to people in Iran 
with this, the spread of the coronavirus is, 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 um, is scary. And I think that this is a moment to reach out to Iran. And I think that, you know, countries in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates should, should help. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I if I'm if I can sit here and and, and say that, um, I think this is a moment to to reach out and find middle ground and find common ground because this affects all of us. We've seen the flippant reactions on Twitter of Saudis who say, "Oh well, you know, the Iranians have been spreading viruses around the world from since 1979, and this is the latest one," describing Iran as a world as a, as a threat yet again. But we've also seen we've also seen efforts to reach out, and the Emirates has uh, sent, I think, uh, a delegation or some aid, and allowed the World Health Organization to fly out from there. You know, this is going to affect all of us, and I think for the Iranians in particular. I mean, they've had a rough year, really rough year, and they're angry. You know, Iranian people are angry because it's the obfuscation and the denials of their leaders that keep pushing them into further crises. I mean, for days. The Iranian leadership denied that they had anything to do with a Ukrainian uh, plane crash, which turned out, which turned out to be having been shot down. And then, you know, they tried to hide the the fact that the coronavirus was spreading in the country, apparently because they didn't want to depress the turnout to the elections mm. uh, in in uh, in February on February twenty first, and also because there was the celebration of the Iranian uh, revolution on the eleventh of February. And so people are angry that their leaders are hiding and lying like that because it costs lives hmm. and um, you know I don't know where this goes from here but yeah. I think it's a, it's a difficult year for Iran I'll say one more thing I do think that something is coming undone to some extent I think the dynamics of 1979 are starting to lose steam okay. and I think that's why you see so many people also protesting con- c- continuously in Iran yeah, I want to end on a high note. Yes. Um, but before we get there, one brief last question about Iran, just to follow up on that, is when, when they responded to the Soleimani uh, killing by by shooting the U.S. military base and they, they thankfully did not kill anyone, was that a calculated risk? I mean, do, do we think that that was so – that they had faith that they were not going to accidentally stumble into war? I mean, it seemed like quite a high-stakes gamble on, on both mm-hmm. sides. How close were we actually to a war? It seemed like a choreographed reaction and counter-reaction. You know, I think there was some, almost maybe some coordination, but it was very high risk. You never know when you're going to stumble into war because of a, because of a mistake. But I do think that the Iranians were not keen on an all-out war. And I think that they were always planning to make America's life difficult without it, without starting a full-on a full-on war, and they continue to do that mm. across the region and beyond. So we've we've started with uh, what happened to us. Let's close with what gives you hope. Everything, everyone I meet in the region, every single person I interviewed in this book, um, the women who are protesting in Baghdad, uh, taking to the streets, denouncing the clerics who want to you know, impose their way of life or impose segregation even on the protests. The young Iraqis who created a beach out of nothing on the t- on the banks of the Tigris River where they can just hang out and create a world that has, that they've been deprived of because of the leadership they have. You know, the protests in, in Lebanon that have, you know, petered out a little bit, but, you know, civil society and just people in general are still working to find ways forward, fighting against corruption, fighting against sectarian politics. The music 
everywhere. The incredible creativity of artists and poets and entrepreneurs and um, novelists and writers everywhere, from Pakistan all the way to Egypt. I wish I knew countries like Algeria or Morocco better. I, I don't. The people who continue to protest in Syria... Every time there's a small ceasefire, every time there's a little bit of space, they take back to the streets and they protest against Bashar al-Assad again. And that's why I, I really wanted to include these voices in my book. And that's why the book is also full of poetry and lyrics of music to remind us and remind everyone of the riches that we have to offer. The book is called Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-Year Rivalry that Unraveled Culture, Religion, and Collective Memory in the Middle East. And you can pick it up anywhere where good books are sold. Thank you very much, Kim. Thanks for having me, Brian.